So, Jim, I'm wondering if we can start off with the werewolves. Is that possible? You know, I don't know if I ever uh, really memorized the story. And I don't know if the story was also told in a very uh, clear way. This story wasn't told in a very clear way. But Slate's Jim Newell knows the basics. Oh, you ever watch a stupid movie late at night, hoping it's going to get better, don't get better, but you keep watching it anyway? The werewolves in question were being discussed by Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker in Georgia. I was watching this movie called Fright Night, Freak Night, or some type of night, but it was about vampires. I don't know if you know vampires and cool people, are they not? But I'm going to tell you something that I found out. A werewolf can kill a vampire. Did you know that? I never knew that, so I didn't want to be a vampire anymore. I wanted to be a werewolf. But then, anyway... Given that Walker is in a very tight runoff race for the last seat in Washington, you'd think it'd be focused on stuff like the economy, election security. But that is not what comes across here. While this anecdote ends with a message about the importance of faith, it takes the long road to get there. You know, I think for people who weren't sure if Herschel Walker was you know, ready to be a senator, I don't think that that really convinced them. Coming from a candidate who'd already fought off an abortion scandal and domestic violence allegations, this story became one more piece of evidence that Herschel Walker is unfit for office. Only this moment, it was funnier than all the rest. Within days, this werewolves and vampires thing, it became a running gag. President Obama joked about it. Since the last time I was here... Since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself. (laughs) When I was seven. Herschel Walker's opponent, Senator Raphael Warnock, released an ad that simply features voters watching this werewolf speech and some other notable gaffes and responding. What the hell is he talking about? Is he serious? Is he for real? A werewolf to kill this weekend on Saturday Night Live, the opening bit was a simple five-minute riff on how embarrassing Herschel Walker is. Maybe in the push. Let's lay low and focus on the message. Exactly. Just like Kanye. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm the issues people care about. Inflation, crime. Vampires, werewolves, that scary little gecko gecko. Yeah. We're going to be looking into all of that. Yeah. I mean, one media consultant put it like this. They said, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Herschel Walker might be the most flawed Republican nominee in the nation this year. Yeah. I mean, there's so many to choose from, but, um, you know, he's the he's the last one standing, so he's going to get all the attention. He's kind of like the final exclamation point on, on Republicans' whole problem this year, which has just been bad candidates. If I look at all this, it looks like Herschel Walker has become something of a joke. But could he still win in this runoff? Yeah, certainly. (laughs) Having said all that, certainly. Today on the show, Georgia is going to the polls again. The result here won't change the balance of power in Washington, but it might answer the question, how purple is Georgia anyway? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. 
this Senate race, the one between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, is sort of the final piece in the midterms puzzle. So for folks who haven't been paying a ton of attention, I'm wondering if you can just step back a little bit, update us on where we left off, like the last time (laughs) Georgians voted, which was November. Sure. So November 8th, you need to get 50 percent to avoid a runoff in Georgia. This is like just a Georgia thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, other states have runoffs. But yeah, in Georgia, it was, I think, about 49 to 48 Warnock. So no one broke 50. There was a libertarian candidate who got, you know, a couple percent. So it was headed to a runoff. And I think that was, even though it was so close, you know, I think a lot of the, the campaign groups working in this race expected it to. So so withheld some of their their fire for the runoff. Hmm. Part of the idea was Brian Kemp is a is a pretty popular governor there. He he beat Stacey Abrams pretty soundly. He got about 54% of the vote. So was the thinking he would kind of bring Walker up with him? Yeah, Walker could kind of ride his coattails. And maybe he helped Walker to an extent, but Walker still got about 200,000 fewer votes than than Brian Kemp did. So it's just a real softness in this candidate. There are some crossover Republicans who are saying, eh, like I'm going to vote for that other guy instead. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a soft candidate. And also Warnock is the the best fundraiser for Senate Democrats, too. So he had, you know, plenty to work with there. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a combination of those couple of things. And, you know, Warnock is an incumbent, too. But you have to think anyway, if it wasn't Herschel Walker, someone with so much baggage and someone who's not very good on the stump, that they they may have had an easier time and may have gotten it done. So let's talk about strategy here. For Raphael Warnock, we talked about how there were these signs that he was attracting crossover voters. So is his strategy basically, let's do more of that? Like, let's convince these folks who may feel a little uneasy about Herschel Walker that, you know, I'm their guy. Yeah, well, I mean, they they have both approaches. They have, uh, you know, organizing groups in, in Georgia, like New Georgia Project, that had their kind of 10-year plan to make Georgia blue and were successful in 2020. And that's about base turnout. Yeah, so they have that part of the equation. They're, you know, they're still trying to, putting a lot of money into ground game and turning out the base. But yeah, there is a lot of uh, persuasion efforts going on here. You're seeing in some of these ads uh, that they're doing where maybe you get, you know, someone who may have been a Republican voter and they say, I just can't vote for for Walker, I can't bring myself to do it. I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm an independent. I usually vote Republican. But there is no way that I can vote for Herschel Walker. The lies, the bizarre statements, I, I just don't get it. So you're trying to, you know, help keep some of those swing voters there. And there's also, you know, some of the people I talk to in my story, they are putting resources into rural Georgia, too, just to, they're not going to, Warnock's not going to win a lot of these rural Georgia counties, but they're trying to, uh, at least minimize their their damages there. You skim as many people as possible. And I guess that's the yeah, that's the approach when you have a lot of money. You just try to get everyone everywhere because why not burn through it all? Right. And it's it's kind of a fail safe too if you don't get quite the the metro Atlanta turnout you wanted, you know, if you can if you don't seed those rural areas and allow them to go 80% against you or whatever, like a, you know, 500 votes here, 1000 votes there, like that all adds up to something. For Herschel Walker, what is his strategy? <laughs> his strategy, you know, I, I wrote in my story, he doesn't really have that nice guy image to protect. He doesn't have, you know, the, the friendly neighborhood pastor image. Everyone's seen the negative stories against him from his past. 
So his strategy is much more the other guys are worse. He's trying to take advantage of it still being in its DNA a red state and saying, you know, maybe you don't like me. Maybe you, you think Warnock's a nice guy, but this is who the Democrats are. You know, he has ads about trans women in, in women's sports and just like kind of hitting on these cultural issues that can motivate a lot of Republican turnout. So he's not fighting, trying to fight on Dems terms. You know, his is much more, don't worry about me, fear the other guy. I've been surprised that in the past few weeks, Herschel Walker has squeezed even more scandal into this very compressed cycle. Like in the last few weeks, an official in Texas confirmed that Walker essentially was a Texas resident and was filing his taxes to confirm that, even though he is saying he's a Georgia resident because he's running to be a Georgia senator. That seems like kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's just one thing after the other. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's kind of baked in already because people knew from the minute Walker got in that, like, he was only very loosely, you know, a Georgia resident, as in not really at all, at least until, you know, he, he thought about he wanted his seat. But there's just more and more allegations against Walker all the time, it feels like. And if he gets away with this and is able to take that seat, I mean, they really got away with something here. Huh. You mean— <laughs> <laughs> like because he's not he's not even supposed to live there. Yeah, and there's just so much like I mean, he had a classic October surprise where the story comes out, oh, this guy who says there should be no abortion in any cases, like, you know, here's the receipt from the woman like he he paid to get an abortion. That's kind of like an, an archetype of like, you know, a, a candidate scandal. And yet, you know it's like hypocrisy one oh one. Yeah, yeah. And then just the, the domestic violence allegations, you know, in his past. It's um, In some ways, it's kind of impressive that he got, you know, what was it, 48 percent of the vote. It's a lot. It is. I mean, it's, it's both impressive that, you know, it, it shows the power of polarization that, you know, you, you, that was maybe their baseline and he just got it. But, you know, he, he on the other side, he trailed other statewide candidates, Republicans, by, by five points or so. Yeah. It was notable to me that this runoff was just cut from nine weeks to four weeks by a Republican-backed law last year. And it made me wonder if Republicans regret doing that at this point, because it really gave them such a compressed timeline to, you know, reset things and push their candidate forward. I don't know if they regret that, and I don't know if more— <laughs> I don't know if more time campaigning would have helped Herschel Walker, I guess we can put it <laughs> that way. If you look at a lot of his appearances now on at events and, and on TV and stuff, he's not doing a whole lot of the talking as surrogates are. So um, I don't think, you know, more time would have helped him necessarily. But, it, you know, Republicans, the condensed timeline meant that you could not register new voters just for the runoffs, just because you needed to register 30 days before the runoff and they're only 28 days after the election. So you were unable to get new voters, which was something that helped Democrats in the 2021 runoffs. They, they actually registered a lot of new voters in that period. So that, that wasn't done by accident. <laughs> you know, they, Republicans are trying to uh, limit one of Democrats' tools there. So I, I don't necessarily know that they disagree with it. And they, I think they just want to get it over with one way or another. In the end, Jim says, the legacy of Republican election laws might end up as the most consequential element of this Georgia Senate race. Because while Herschel Walker is an imperfect candidate, Democrats are still having to campaign hard against him. When you go from 
four weeks of early voting to one week and you make sure that, you know, all ballot drop boxes have to be moved inside government facilities, which are only open during business hours, or you make it much harder to request an absentee ballot, I think those things will have a meaningful effect on the ultimate numbers here. Like Democrats could, can still win absolutely, but, you know, on the margins, like I think it's be pretty clear that Democrats probably lost some votes because of that. And if you look at some of the stories from this weekend too, where you have, you know, in early voting, there was, you know, people would show up in Fulton County or wherever and there'd be two or three hour lines and then they just turn around and leave. And I think that, you know, that shouldn't be dismissed if Democrats pull it out anyway. Like it was really, I think it really did trim on the ability for people and it just made people have to work that much harder to do the simple act of casting their ballot. So I'd like to see a quantitative analysis of what exactly the effect of it was. But yeah, my takeaway talking to people about this was that Democrats did not overhype the damage with that. You know, they can still win, but Republicans made it a lot harder for them to do that. After the break, who is lining up behind Herschel Walker and who isn't? In these final days before the runoff, Jim Newell says Republican figures have been coming out of the woodwork to lend support to Herschel Walker. Texas Senator Ted Cruz has made trips to Georgia. So has Senator Lindsey Graham. But maybe the most consequential endorsement has come from Georgia's recently reelected governor, Brian Kemp. After distancing himself from Walker during the general, Kemp is now showing up in full force with the confidence of a guy who has just won office. It was not that Kemp didn't support Walker or something in November. He did, but he never held a rally for him. He was basically focused, understandably, on winning his own race, which even though he was favored, you know, it was still Stacey Abrams. And he still won by seven points. He ran a good campaign. Is it fair to say that he that Governor Kemp thought of Herschel Walker as, you know, potentially an albatross? I mean, he may have. I think that, you know, since the general election, uh, Kemp has campaigned with Herschel Walker. He has shot footage of his him campaigning, you know, has been used for uh, – a couple of different ads, and then there's one direct-to-camera ad that he shot for one of the Republican super PACs. So he's trying to use his relative popularity to drag Herschel across the line. And also, critically, he's lent out his get-out-the-vote operation, which he kind of built out of necessity, to a Republican super PAC to help with that, that element of it. What's in it for Brian Kemp to do all this work and open up the spigot of money for Herschel Walker? Well, one, in terms of opening up the spigot of money, you know, the money is going to <laughs> to Kemp's team because the, the Senate leadership fund, the super PAC that's borrowing his grassroots group, paid a couple million dollars to, to Kemp's organization for, for the, you know, the ability to use this. But I think Kemp also wants to – he wants to show that he's a good soldier, you know, that he's going to help do whatever he can to, to get Walker over the finish line now that – he doesn't have to worry about any of that, you know, splattering back on him <laughs> and his own campaign. <laughs> and I think he just wants to show his ability as a, a a kingmaker in Georgia. You know, he could make a narrative like Walker was dead in the water until he got my help and then I put him over the top. I don't know what Brian Kemp's future ambitions are. Maybe eventually he wants to run for, for Senate or president. But it would be 
kind of a another arrow in his quiver that he would have to show, you know, look what I was able to to do. Yeah. And I guess if Walker doesn't win, he has that nice plausible deniability of like, well, it just wasn't the right candidate. Yeah, exactly. It was his fault. <laughs> it's interesting to me to look at who is not turning out to give Herschel Walker a boost in this race. Because, like, while Herschel Walker is personally close with Donald Trump, he's talked about them vacationing together at Disney World years ago. (laughs) Trump has not shown up to stump during this runoff. Right. Do we know why? Uh, I think that was a joint decision between Trump and the Herschel Walker campaign, which I'm surprised that they were able to convince Trump to do that. But, yeah, I think they determined that having Trump out there on the stump and getting— you know, all the attention would have just been difficult for them when they're trying to to pick up, you know, the median voter. I guess you could make the argument that it's like good for both of them because Trump, you don't want to be responsible if Herschel Walker loses. Right. And Herschel Walker maybe is seeing or his folks are seeing the writing on the wall in terms of what happened in November. So let's just call a spade a spade and, and agree to be friends again in January. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I I think it was it was definitely the right choice for both of them. Trump doesn't always make, you know, the right choice, though. Like, for example, he would not have encouraged Herschel Walker to run for the Senate seat if he was always making the right choice. But it was a thing at the beginning of the mid of the runoff that it could be a repeat of the last election where, you know, Trump makes the runoff all about him. Like in 2021, it was he was still on his stolen election kick. This time he was announcing his his presidential bid. There are a lot of Republican senators and stuff saying, please do not announce it. Do not make this all about you as we have another critical election in a swing state to win. But it seems like they've kind of gotten away with it a little bit and that Trump has been pretty, I don't ever, I don't want to say he's been quiet. You know, he just had a like <laughs> missive the other day about like uh, undoing the constitution, but he hasn't really kind of made himself the, the the main character in politics uh, in the last month in a way that some Republicans thought he would. Yeah. It does feel like the Democrats want this more, which I guess raises this other question, which is really about, like, what's at stake in this election? Because this is the last Senate race, and we already know that the Democrats have control of the Senate This would just give them a little bit of a buffer when they're coming up against a Joe Manchin or a Kirsten Sinema. So does it just matter more to Democrats winning this thing? Or I don't know. How do you see it? Well, I think that if you remember in October when the first Herschel Walker paid for the abortion story came out, there was a lot of panic the first night. But by day two, you had... Republican campaign groups and Republican surrogates are all saying, whatever, we need to win the Senate. Ignore everything else. None of this matters. We can't let Chuck Schumer be majority leader again. So that's kind of how they rationalized, you know, trying to get out the vote uh, to support this candidate who had a lot of flaws. That's completely gone now. I mean, Democrats already have, you know, they'll at least have the same majority they currently have. um, And now they have the opportunity to add a seat. So that's a pretty big deal for Republicans that given how flawed this candidate as an individual is, you can't tell people, you know, suck it up. We need it for the team. There are some smaller stakes. It's better for Republicans to have 50 seats um, instead of 49 because you get, you know, much more advantageous position on committees and you can slow up Democrats a little bit more. But 
you know, people don't necessarily understand all of that. So I do think, you know, I think both sides could have an issue with Senate control already being decided. There might be some, you know, Democratic voters, too, who are low propensity who might think, okay, well, I read on the news every day about how the Senate control is decided. I guess I don't need to show up anymore. But I do think it hurts Republicans more because they have the more flawed candidate. And so it's if you don't have that lever of you need to do this just for the overall number. Just suck it up. Yeah, it's it's a lot harder, you know, on the margins to, to kind of get everyone out that you need to get out. You know, in the piece you wrote about Georgia this week, you said one could write a history of American politics from 2020 to 2022 through the prism of Georgia. So it's only appropriate then with this runoff that the state gets to write the final chapter. Do you really think this is the final chapter? Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) The story continues. I mean, I do think so. After this, you will have um, John Ossoff will have another four years in his Senate seat. Uh, The winner of this runoff will have six years. There won't be another governor's race for four years. So there'll be the presidential race. I mean, it's a lot of money is going to go into it for the presidential race. But if you look at what happened in Georgia where, you know, it was the center of the the universe with the runoffs and with Trump's efforts to steal the election. There's still, you know, there's DOJ and county level investigations into that ongoing still. There was the the uh, Republicans voter law, which was a huge controversy in 2021. Uh, you have Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp in this kind of heavyweight rematch for governor's race. And then you have the most expensive Senate race in the country that, you know, won't decide control, but, you know, is one of the, the two or three most important. So it's kind of been just a lot. And I think, Georgia, it'll it'll be interesting to see kind of how Georgia proceeds from here. Is it going to take a, a path like Virginia where it it kind of breaks that threshold of turning blue and then just gets pretty comfortably blue, at least in, in terms of federal races? Or is it going to be a a North Carolina where Obama won that in 2008 and Democrats really haven't won a whole lot else there since. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that, how that develops. But when I say it's, you know, I do think that this runoff, it's the end. I mean, it's officially the end of the 2022 midterms, but I do think it ends a really uh, distinct chapter here. Jim Newell, I'm super grateful for you coming on the show. Thanks for doing it. Thank you. Jim Newell is a senior politics writer for Slate. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, Victoria Dominguez, and Sam Kim. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter, say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. <laughs> 